people are asking the wrong people what they want from the event. They're always asking the people who come to the event, who are going to come to the event no matter how bad it is, because they're not coming to the event for the content. They're coming to see their friends again. We ask the people who come again and again, who've already said that they're fine with whatever the conference is for big ideas. We need to be talking to people who didn't come. People who came five years ago and never came back. Uh, talk to the young people. Right. And young in conferences is a relative term, especially as that audience is grade. But not what do they want from the conference, but what do they want to accomplish? And then gather some of your smart people and say, what are some new ways we can accomplish that? Welcome to the Impact Roadmap, a podcast designed to give you the practical, concrete steps to grow your nonprofit or future forward business in a sustainable way. I'm your host, Joey Goon. Let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, my name is Joey Goon. I am the host uh, of the Impact Roadmap podcast. And today I have the uh, distinct honor and the privilege of interviewing Matt, the founder of Filament. Matt, I do not want to butcher this and I should know this by now. Is it Homan or Haman? It is Homan. Homan. Amazing. So um, you, you run a facilitation-focused meeting company that helps smart people think better together. Um, I love the idea. You said you have surplus disorder really bad because you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit more about you, know, you your background, and, um, and what inspired you to start this company. Well, I am a lawyer by training. I'm recovering now. I'm not sure what step of the journey I'm on, but I've admitted I had a problem and uh, I've gone a little past that. Uh, what started me on this journey is as a young lawyer, I was always kind of on the edge of trying new things. I started to blog early before there weren't a lot of lawyers, blog, before there were a lot of lawyers blogging and started to write about innovation, creativity, client service, those sort of things. And what I found is that relatively quickly, I got asked to speak at conferences and I would find these conferences to be kind of uh, lame in many ways. I, the, the lowest common denominator content, it was things that I wasn't particularly interested in, in as someone who's on the edge. And so I remember sitting at a bar at, uh, at the Sheraton in Chicago. It was an American Bar Association event. It was almost three in the morning. Uh, the bar had been closed for two hours, but we were having the most amazing conversation about the future of law practice, right? We were kind of nerdy lawyers back in the day. And the, the realization hit that this was a conversation that would have never happened in the conference, right? It wasn't broadly uh, understood enough. It wasn't, uh, couldn't fill a room full of 400 people. They certainly wouldn't have been able to get continuing education credit for it. And so very naively, I said, well, why don't we just stick around here next year another day? We'll find a space and we'll have these conversations when the sun is still up versus when we were waiting for it to come back up again. And we built a conference. Uh, it was about as unconferenced as you get. We banned PowerPoint. Uh, it was really conversation driven. Uh, lots of small group conversations about things that people wanted to talk about. And out of that, uh, people in that session came and said, oh, I'd love you to do this for my company. I'd love you to do this for my law firm. Uh, I was still practicing in my hometown of Highland, Illinois at the time. And it was only after doing a couple of those things that seemed kind of fun where I started to realize there was potentially a business here. Uh, took a couple steps along the way, uh, worked at, for a nonprofit that used the arts to teach business skills, uh, worked for a design agency where people drew pictures of hard to understand things and uh, have kind of mishmashed all of those things together to uh, run filament. We've been now up in Adam for about eight years. 
That is awesome. Thank you for the backstory. I really appreciate that. And so as um, you know, we're both event producers and a lot of the people listening to this podcast are um, event producers themselves, or they're running an organization that really relies on events to build an ecosystem, to build a community, to make more people care about their brands, whether they're doing that through meetings or galas or conferences or summits. So events are these expensive, transient, temporary moments in time. How do we make them more meaningful? Oh, I, I love the question. Uh, and I'll warn your, uh, the viewers, the listeners, that uh, I have been relatively cynical about this only because, as so many, I've seen so many bad events. And so uh, for those of you who are doing good events, none of these comments apply to you. Uh, but for those of you who are doing a slightly different version of the same event from 40 years ago, uh, here's the challenge. When you think about building in events that are engaging as you build, think about events that are meaningful, there once was a time when we had to have an event, I think a conference is an example. It was the only place where people could come to find that freshly curated new insights that hadn't made their way into the mainstream, uh, that hadn't landed in a book that everyone had read, uh, that hadn't been on TV or in movies. And we keep building conferences today as if that's the only place for curated content and information to live, though it's ubiquitous, right? Everything that I do, uh, every insight I see, someone's written it on Twitter, someone's built a YouTube video, someone's done a TED Talk, someone's done a TikTok. And so I think about our, this idea of conferences and events as information delivery mechanisms to be a bit outdated. Uh, there's still room for it. There's still an opportunity to inspire, to engage, to share, for people to learn together. But I think where most conferences, or many at least in our experience, have missed the boat is they've relied upon the human connection to be done almost by accident. Right. If I'm sitting for most of my day shoulder to shoulder, facing the same direction, watching someone read a bad PowerPoint slide uh, again and again and again, and then only the networking happens during the networking event It has alcohol, might have loud music, unfriendly, potentially to introverts, uh, unfriendly to many others. I only get the networking benefit of a conference when I'm intentional about it as an individual attendee. And that's very uneven. However, if a conference if you think about the power that you have in an event, you're bringing people together who care about the same thing, who are often in the same industry, who might work for the same company. You've got this massive amount of raw materials of engagement, insight, uh, peer learning and sharing, and yet we build so little of that into our events. I think the fundamental question that many people should ask, especially as CFOs start to rethink the budget for live events, sending people on airplanes to be face-to-face, -face, is what can we do here that we can only do in person? Right? And if Zoom uh, has taught us anything during the pandemic, we can be bad with PowerPoint on Zoom just like we can in person. Sure. Why do we need to be using these events for information delivery? Let's use them for insight discovery. Let's use them for people to connect, to engage, to think together, not just drink together, and to find in some ways those insights uh, that they otherwise might be lucky enough to get from a speaker uh, if it's in what that speaker's planning to talk about. The more they engage, they can actually ask those questions uh, propose problems of their own to be solved and get potentially the best focus group networking and thought partners uh, anywhere they'll find all year. So you're, you're not your exact terminology, but your approach is kind of let's move away from the sage on the stage, just like one person, sort of this passive downstream dialogue of this person sort of professing their wisdom and knowledge to an audience that's passively just receiving it to 
can we be facilitators kind of helping move the audience as a guide on the side, realizing that if we turn the chairs around and notice that a lot of the wisdom actually lies on the other side of the stage, we can sort of unlock this collective wisdom and resourcefulness. Is that what you're suggesting? Oh, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And a better way to put it, Joey, you know, we've all been in events where we've been inspired by amazing speakers, right? And almost what always happens is that uh, apart from the speaker never seeming to have time for questions and answers, yeah. uh, that handful of people after every event rush to the stage, business cards in hand, hoping in some way they can get that famous speaker to connect with them, to answer a question, to know that they met them. And while that can be valuable, that speaker doesn't care about it, right? Especially that they're moving on and that they're jumping, heading to the airplane or heading to the airport, jumping on an airplane and going to the next event to give the exact same talk. The people who care, uh, who have the same uh, experiences, who've, who've maybe failed in different ways and are willing to share those wounds uh, with their peers, they're the, they're the ones in the room. And so how do you get them to engage, connect, and uh, spend some time uh, talking about the things that matter to them, sharing their wisdom, uh, engaging? There's a quote we have on our wall here at Filament, and I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I might be wrong about this, about the author. But the quote is this. It says, if I have an apple and you have an apple uh, and we each trade apples, we both still have one. But if I have an idea and you have an idea and we trade ideas, we now both have two. I think so oftentimes we're missing that idea generation and engagement and problem solving from this audience of people who are for the first time in my career are just like me when I go to these events versus being the only person who thinks like me or does my job in a large or small organization. And yet we unlock that so rarely uh, that it really seems a shame in many events that people can walk away uh, not having a meaningful conversation with anyone, especially if they're relatively introverted uh, or feel there's some sort of power imbalance with them as a brand new attendee uh, to a conference filled with veterans. So I, mean, I, I love this because we, we have similar, sim we're in the same industry. Right. And we're solving for similar challenges. We, we see the same opportunities in the event space. Um, and we're, we're sort of bringing this like joint venture, this joint, this, this partnership where you're solving for a need, we're solving for a need, and we can make these, these experiences exponentially better by having the technology in the space that enables these results, but also having a facilitated event that allows, that sort of helps the audience realize that maybe I thought I was coming for the content, but what I didn't realize was I was actually coming for the community. And that's the reason why I'm going to come back again and again and again. So let's talk about the, the idea behind like how we build community at events. How have you seen this done really well? You know, I think there, there are multiple uh, layers to the onion. I think the one piece is it how do you find room for people to talk, engage, uh, and solve problems together? And when I say solve problems, it might be just discussing a new trend. Uh, it might be even hearing a keynote, but making room for them to process what they've heard and engage with others around uh, the lessons they've just learned. That connection starts the community. I think there's lots of organizations who believe they have these communities, these online uh, networks of their attendees. Uh, but for most, it's it's not much better, if better at all, than, than your... 500 to 1,000 connections on LinkedIn. The communities that you can use technology to, uh, to build and strengthen 
uh, online networks, et cetera, really take off once you've made those connections in person. There's something just magical about reading body language, about breaking bread with someone, about realizing not only do they have the same challenges as you, but they've got a five-week-old baby just like you, right? There are those kinds of things that when you think about what you do in person, those are skills that, that have been with us for generations and generations, and yet we so often put them aside. So I think the question that I ask is that it's not just how do we build community, which I think is a great question. It's what do we want that community to do? Do we want them to solve a problem? Do we want them to stay connected? Do we want them to make our conference better? All of those things, depending upon which one, two, or three of them you choose, you build the event uh, to foster that. The community, even as engaging as an event might be, doesn't happen by accident. It requires intention. But the people you bring in the room are your best problem solvers to help you figure out how to keep that energy going. Now, are we talking about, I know I know that this is this is probably you know, um, pretty pl plug and play for you all with, you know, smaller intimate groups of individuals where you've got, um, let's say a, a, an organization working on a, um, like, hey, we want to more meaningfully shift how we're interacting with our customers. How do we create that outcome? And you would come in and facilitate an experience to sort of lead that conversation. How right. do you take these conversations and, and scale them to a 500 person, 1000 person, 1500 person conference. How might an organization do that at a larger level? I think that this, the scaling is, is interesting. I, I do wanna come back, Joey, to some of the things we've been talking about on what do you do with all the insight after? So sure. put that part aside for a moment. Okay, yeah, we'll come back. Uh, the simplest way to get people to engage to do this is round tables. It sounds absolutely insane. It sounds criminally silly. Uh, and simple, but giving people a chance to be face-to-face -face and realize that the people they need to be looking at and engaging are their peers and not just the focus on the stage is step number one. Uh, step number two, and again, it seems relatively small, and this is a this is a hill I'm willing to die on, but the conference, the round tables that every hotel has are gigantically too big, right? You end up with airplane neck because the table is so big, there's often a gigantic centerpiece in the middle of it. The only people you can talk to are the people either on the left or right of you, just like if you're sitting in an airplane seat for a five hour trip. And so smaller tables, round tables is, is, is step one. I think the other piece though, and, and to be more serious, the way that we do this, and again, there's a thousand different ways, but the way we do this is with canvases, with worksheets, with tools where from the front of the room, and I've done that thousand person conference by myself for eight hours with a bunch of lawyers nonetheless is that you give them a tool, something to guide their conversation. Uh, and then you let them have the conversations. You don't need to have someone at every table making sure that they're facilitating, they're talking about what you wanna talk about. You, we've got conversation cards, we've got all of these things that we get people engaged because at every table of six to seven people, there are at least two rule followers who whatever you ask them to do will make sure the table does it as long as the instructions aren't too difficult to understand. But I think then the next piece from there, is that when you have that room full of people, understanding that the first place they sit is their center of gravity. It's people they know most, uh, it's people they haven't seen for 20 years or the people they visit again and again and again at every conference or event. And so what we do next is after we do this exercise, it might be 45 minutes or an hour, the volume of the room goes up, the conversations happen. We then ask people occasionally to report out. Uh, that's hard to do with a thousand people unless you just pick two or three insights that you wanna get from certain uh, folks in the room. But I think the next thing is then you get them and make them move tables. 
Hmm. Right. We'll tell people in a room full of in a room full of a thousand people that your job is to, is to sit at another table. If there's more than two of the same people at the table, you've done it wrong. And the first time they grumble, the next time they laugh, the third time they start doing it automatically. And so you get even in a room without having breakouts, without having significant management, without trying to, to game plan exactly where everybody sits on their my name badge on their badge. They start to engage automatically and you'll see people like, oh, I've not seen you or I've not met you. And then the networking is happening. People are shaking hands and they start to trade business cards at the end of the conversation. It's not the beginning of it. Right. So unlike a traditional networking event where you lead with who are you and what do you do? In this situation, they're leading with, oh, we've got to talk about this challenge or solve this problem or engage around this activity. And then the networking happens after, right? Now, here's who I am. Not my status somehow determines whether you should be paying attention to me or my ideas. It democratizes it quite a bit. It really helps uh, both the introverts and the extroverts engage. Uh, and it does some really amazing things around power. And I say that uh, that's a word that is is loaded, but uh, if I'm a fairly junior person and I see someone who I recognize uh, as the CEO of another company that I admire, that's really hard to be engaged with them one-on-one. -on -one. But in a table, when you've got something you've got to do, all that tends to go out the window and people roll up their sleeves and get to work. Love it. L let's, uh, let's talk about the experiential, um, experiential learning cycles and like to to dive deeper into that, it's like, okay, so we create a, con a concrete experience, then we observe and we reflect, there's abstraction and conceptualization, we're hypothesizing and testing, and then back to another concrete experience. And it's just like rinse, rinse, recycle, is that right? Rinse, reuse, repeat, rinse, recycle, repeat. And so we're just- It depends if we're talking shampoo or, uh, or aluminum cans. I think it's- We're recycling regardless. <laughs> But from there, we're going to iterate, we're going to refine, we're going to incorporate new knowledge and new existing mental models. And so learning is a process, not a static outcome. But one of the things that you and I talked about, and I think Tony Robbins says this, is you can become addicted to just going events and thinking you're going to learn something from the content, but then never implementing the actual ideas, which is what creates results. So you mentioned insights. So this experiential learning cycles, like how are you taking all of this information, this knowledge and putting it into play after the event, so it doesn't just, so it transcends the four walls of the venues as a, opposed to dying after the event's over. So I, I, there, are, there are so many different ways. Uh, the things that we've seen our customers do, sometimes they've called upon us for help and sometimes they've taken this stuff and the, taken the work and built, uh, you know, focused, I hate the word committee, focused groups of people, task forces, et cetera, to start to implement that. So imagine, uh, I'll just give an example, thousand lawyers in a room, uh, thousand lawyers talking about how over the course of six to seven or eight hours, how they might grow their business, uh, engage with clients in a different way, innovate around billing and so on and so forth. In those kinds of conversations in a room that size, thousands of ideas come up. One of the benefits of having the tools, and again, they're worksheets for us, as simple as that sounds, they're, uh, they're large size, they're a chance for people to see the work that's happening. We ask people to write in marker versus you know fine point pen. You need to have someone to go through and, and synthesize those, right? But you're going to see the same great ideas bubble up to the top again and again and again. And even as a participant, as you move from table to table and exercise to exercise, you start to hear some of the same themes emerge. But once you take those ideas, there's really three things you can do with them. The first thing is to just share them, 
right? If I get a chance in a, in a, in a conference and it's around a problem that I'm facing, it might be growing my business, it might be unique marketing opportunities, it might even be to be really meta, how we might reimagine the conference, right? If that's my business and something I care about, I'm in a room full of a thousand people who also care about it, I'm probably going to want to look and see what everyone else talked about. Right. And, and I think there's technology that will help you automate that, that will help you do some uh, sentiment analysis on some of that language and you can transcribe all of them. But just being able to see the other things people wrote down as they were having the same conversations I'm having is incredibly valuable, super lightweight and relatively easy. I think the second stage is you get a little bit more, a little deeper into it is how do you uh, synthesize? How do you share back in a more meaningful way? Uh, one thing I love so much about your work, Joey, is imagine giving you that challenge that is not just what we need to prepare for the conference and what we deliver in the event. It's how do we then find, interview, synthesize, and build these bite-sized chunks of knowledge to go back to the community in some way. And so even again, if no new ideas are formed after the event, there's a really an amazing way to share those out uh, with intention. But I think the third way, and this really gets to the deepest level of this, is that how do you activate that community to continue to work on these ideas, right? You've given them some frameworks. You've given them some muscle memory on what it's like to collaborate with peers who might otherwise be viewed as competitors or doing similar things. And how do you now leverage these in-person relationships to build continued online collaboration uh, in a knowledge community of some sort? And again, now you start thinking about what are the experiments? What, what did I try that didn't work? How do we fail more publicly? How do I use this newfound peer group who I now respect in a different way because I know that I like the way they think? Uh, and now we continue those conversations even after the event is over. And those, those conversations will continue to happen. But as an event planner, organizer, uh, you know, whether you think of it as a, a nonprofit community or you think of it as a, uh, an employer who's bringing all of their people together to talk about better ways to sell, the things you can do to continue to keep them in touch, uh, technology empowers them in such a uh, such better way than we could have done, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just starts with what do you want to accomplish? Because the moment you get people uh, permission to realize that the conference doesn't have to be just hour long keynotes, four person panels and breakout sessions where just smaller versions of hour long keynotes and four person panels the sky's the limit. How have you seen this done really well? So, so we talk a lot about exercises. Is there like one, are there maybe one or two or three different examples of exercises? Like you shared the most, one of the most unique ways of starting a conference was the, you shared the rock, paper, scissors idea. Do you have simple, you know, just interesting things that people might want to um, th think about to just like re-engineer the framework of how they're bringing people together, maybe like one, two or three of your, your. Yeah, I'll, get, I'll, I'll give you a couple. First of all, the, the rock, paper, scissors isn't my idea. I wish it were. Uh, it's literally playing rock, paper, scissors in a room full of a thousand people or more. Uh, it, Joey, you and I compete. You beat me. I now have to follow you around as you find another uh, foe to vanquish and be your biggest cheerleader. You beat that foe. And now you have three boosters following you around three to five, five to seven, and, and so on as the groups get bigger and bigger. And pretty soon you have 500 people on one side of the room, 500 people on the other screaming at the top of their lungs for the person to win a game of rock, paper, scissors. Uh, 
Google it, you'll find it on YouTube. Like it's a really amazing exercise. Here's the two things that, that, I, that we use that oh, I really love, and there's a bunch of these as well, but two simple ones that you could do tomorrow. One is that you have to realize, especially as you're introducing some of these new methods, some of these, uh, these new ways of thinking, that it's going to be hard for people to get their mind around, especially when you have entrenched planners. You've got people who've come to the same conference again and again and again because they love it. So the one thing I would do, and this is not an exercise, I'll talk about exercises in a second, is to build a lab track. We've been talking about this with a handful of conferences as well of, hey, we're going to have a separate track of our conference, especially if it's a big enough conference. This track is a lab track, L-A-B. Uh, this is a track where we're going to experiment with stuff. Uh, the content will all be familiar. It might even be content you're, that you could hear elsewhere, but the methodology is different. We're going to make it invitation only. You've got to apply to attend. You've got to give us more feedback potentially with deeper surveys, follow-ons on what you liked and didn't like about the format versus the content, right? And, and so you bifurcate one from the other. I think two exercises that I love, and again, these are super simple, is the one is you're selling uh, something people have never done disguised as something they do all the time. So here's our hour keynote, all right? It's very easy for people to see an hour on the schedule and say, oh, here's a keynote. I can't wait. I'm going to go to the keynote. And so instead of letting that person talk for 57 and a half minutes and then open up the floor to questions for two and a half, you give them 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, we don't use PowerPoint at Filament, but you can, they can be a traditional TED talk length sort of presentation. But once that person's done, instead of starting with another TED talk and another TED talk and another TED talk where people's heads explode with knowledge and information and exhaustion, you then give the room five minutes of silence. Five minutes of silence to an introvert goes quickly to an extrovert like me feels like 20 minutes, but you give the room silence, you give them all, it could be a tool sheet, a tool sheet, a worksheet, a tool, a questionnaire, but you have them capture what do they like? What are they still curious about? What are they wondering? What do they wish the speaker would have talked about? What questions does it lead them to want to answer elsewhere in the event? And after they have a chance to process what they've just heard, then the table, each table gets to talk for 20 minutes. Uh, the speaker can kind of hummingbird from table to table, should they choose, and ask some, answer some one-on-one -on -one questions. But what's happening now is the table is processing what they've just learned. Sometimes you get the emperor has no clothes moment, right? When someone says at the table, I thought that was terrible. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, and they can argue if they want, they get to talk about it, but the table has now been thoughtful about what they've just heard and they've gotten feedback and engagement with the people who are at the tables with them. Not only that, but they've also connected and networked in a way during that time period. The last 15 or 20 minutes of this hour long time block, depending upon the size of the room, a table gets to ask a question, individuals do not. Uh, and I hate to throw my gender in the under the bus, but it's almost always a man who raises his hand and has to say something in front of everyone that isn't really a question, except it's got a little inflection at the end. It's more a don't you agree with me sort of statement to the room. Everyone else's eyes roll, everyone knows it's coming and there's nothing anyone can do about it. By making the tables ask a question, it means the table has thought about this and this is something they all wanna know. And then they get to ask the speaker a question, you know, and then, the, you know, ding, 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 your minute of question and answer is up, next table or you run until the time goes out and your hour long keynote is done. The same thing works well with panels. Instead of that 15 minute, you get five minute, five minute, five minute. Again, not them being a panel together, but discrete conversations. 
but the model works again and again. And it's just way more engaging and interesting. Another thing that I love, and this is one, this is really the first facilitation I've ever did, I've ever done before I thought it was facilitation. It probably was 25 years ago for me now. I have to think about how old I was at the time. And uh, it was an event where all of these people, all of these members of these organizations would submit these awards for the, these, these projects they'd done for awards, but they never really saw the light of day. And so I thought, well, God, how can we get people to share them? And I started to ask people, would you do a presentation on this award? Will you talk more about this? And I was dealing with a bunch of people who were scared to, to do public speaking or didn't want to take the time to present and so on and so forth. So what we did instead was we gave each person no more than a minute. We promised them there would be a bell. We'd kick them off stage, but they had a chance to talk about the project. Uh, this could easily be talk about something you're doing uh, in your organization or in your city that's working. It could be talking about a terrible mistake your organization has made that you'll never make again. It could be talking about a product you use or a service you need. The topics don't matter as long as they have a consistent theme, but everyone gets a minute. And so you see these with maybe 10 or 20 people ahead of time, but you may also allow some volunteers to come up on stage. But Joy gets up and says, we just did this amazing event. We repurposed technology in a creative way. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And the net promoter score of the attendees went from 40 to 70. I'll be at table two. Bell rings. He sits down. Next person shares. Next person shares. And now what happens? You've got kind of a master list of where everyone is and some notes. And now, uh, oddly enough, right when happy hour starts, everyone can now work their way from whichever table they want to talk to where they want to learn more. So I might be someone who's doing an event that's so small that I'm Joey's not going to be a fit for me. I'm not going to talk to him. But that other person who shared something that I thought was really valuable is worth my time. And that per the people at their table, they might have a demonstration. They might have a, something to share. They might have a business card. But especially if you do this kind of piece of an event in the first day, the first night if in, in a multi-day event, you not only have gotten all this information, you've set these people up who were on stage for 30 to 45 seconds probably as experts, and they then get asked questions throughout the rest of the event about the thing they presented on. Like those are two super simple things, Joey, but they are really easy to do uh, and have meaningful impact in a way that uh, feels high energy uh, and valuable, but doesn't take any significant facilitation expertise or particular knowledge to do. And that is how the room starts to crack the nut on complex topics. That's right. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> there's so many things to, with so many different directions that we could go, Matt. Why, why do, why is it, why is this such a challenging thing? Like why have events not changed for the last 40 years? Like technology's changed, but the way that we are thinking about bringing people together hasn't really changed. Why? I think you're like the, the, the coolest thing for you in events is, and, and the worst thing for me is that dichotomy between the technology keeps on getting more and more amazing. There's more things you can do with it, right? That's got to be uh, amazingly interesting to you and your team. Uh, but what gets frustrating for me and my team is that the way people think about events hasn't changed much at all. Uh, there's an old uh, Gene Hackman movie, 1961, 63, something like that, like that called The Conversation. Gene Hackman is this uh, surveillance expert uh and surveillance expert now, like it was the real to real, it was the hidden microphones, all that sort of stuff. And he hears a conversation that, that concerns him. But as part of this movie, there's a scene where he goes to a conference of other surveillance experts. 
and I'm not kidding, Joy, it looked like the exact same conferences today. The exhibit at the on the exhibit floor, people were giving away pens, right? It was no different. And so I think where I land is is where we see events not moving quickly enough, at least for our taste, is that there's often a division of labor between the people who build the box for the meeting and the people who fill it. So you have event planners who are amazing at their jobs, but they're given just a limited amount of power. Logistics, making the trains run on time, making sure the coffee's hot, the soda's cold, the the cookies warm, the that people are where they're supposed to be, and so on and so forth. And so you get all of these rooms, you get all these places, but they're working off a template from last year's event, right? Because they don't know what's going to go in them. They just know that they've been told they need this number of rooms because this is the number of people we think are going to attend. And then what happens, and again, this isn't everywhere, but in lots of organizations, especially nonprofits uh, or uh, membership-based organizations, the people who then decide on what goes in those rooms tend to be volunteers. Mm. Uh, they aren't experts in meetings. Uh, they've only gone to versions of this same meeting again and again, year after year. That's why they're on the planning committee. And so what do they do? They don't even think about format differently. They just think, well, we've got to have a keynote to begin. We certainly have to do something at lunch. We have a couple workshops in the afternoon. We've got a closing keynote. We've got panels. And then, then they're trying to pick topics that might be new and interesting, uh, but they're not doing anything with formats. And so you get the dreaded panel, which is the four people at a table. There's only three microphones. For some reason, there's never enough microphones at these panel tables. I still don't know what magic, it's like the sock that gets lost in your dryer. Uh, I don't know where the, that fourth microphone goes. The first person goes for 20 minutes. It should have been 15. The second person thinks, well, they went for 20 minutes. I'm going to go for 20 minutes. The last two are completely shortchanged. And then one of their one of them can't even get their laptop to plug into the projector. Right. right. So like, and that's rinse and repeat. It's again and again and again. And so I don't know where the solution is other than finding some outside thought partners, not to necessarily facilitate or do, but just to say this is possible. These are some new ways for you to engage. Uh, these are some creative ways to activate your team. I think another mistake that's made, and this is not just in the conference world, but it is something that I see in a lot there a lot, is that people are asking the wrong people what they want from the event. They're always asking the people who come to the event, who are going to come to the event no matter how bad it is, because they're not coming to the event for the content. They're coming to see their friends again, right? That's why they're at the event. And, it, and that's awesome. The connection, the reason to be there is something we tend to trick ourselves and say, I'm going for the content. Well, really, I want to go to be with people like me. Uh, in some cases, I want to go because this is the only place on the planet I'm a superstar. I'm a mid-level procurement expert in a gigantic company, and everyone hates me, and I'm, being, I'm exaggerating, but here, everyone's a procurement expert. The vendors love us because we're so, they're solving our problems. It's amazing. And so we ask the people who come again and again, who've already said that they're fine with whatever the conference is, for big ideas. We need to be talking to people who didn't come. People who came five years ago and never came back. Uh, talk to the young people, right? And young in conferences is a relative term, especially as that audience is grade. But not what do they want from the conference, but what do they want to accomplish? And then gather some of your smart people and say, what are some new ways we can accomplish that? Thank you for sharing, Matt. Just I, I, and I, Joey, I, I, and I do want to add this. I think that like I would love nothing more 
uh, to find a way to help meeting planners recapture the expertise that has been taken from them. Uh, meeting planners spend a ton of time learning, understanding, figuring out what's next, and yet they're so oftentimes marginalized by the people because they're not content experts that they can't possibly plan the content. And so they get shoved to the side once the logistics and the box is built. And it's really a shame because the, the folks who are coming out, of, especially now who are coming out of school with uh, the certifications, with, the, with the, the bachelor's, the master's degrees, there's some really amazing things that they're learning, but they're oftentimes asked by their old school organizational employers to put that to the side because this has always worked for us. So find, find companies like Utopia, find companies like Filament that will provide an opportunity for you uh, to, uh, I'm encouraging people to come apply to our companies to work for us so that we can, so that we can create these types of experiences at scale, right? Right. So I want to- and, and here's, the, here's the thing, Joey, just the, the scale thing is that you don't have to build, if you've got a 10,000 person conference or a thousand person conference, you don't have to start with a thousand. Like what's that, sure. you know, what's that hundred person event for two hours? What's that half day workshop the day before the conference? There's so many things if you're willing to experiment that you can try that have a relatively low cost of failure, but that allow you to the next year and the next year build the advocates who are like, oh, well, we got to do that again because that was amazing. Let's do it bigger. Let's do it more. Uh, we don't have to, you don't have to solve everything for everybody all at once. And so those who are looking at reimagining their events uh, struggle sometimes to think they've got to do it all at once. And I, I don't know, I, I don't want to, to close without this as well. Talk to your vendors, right? Nearly every event is paid for, if not completely, at least in part by the sponsors, by the, by the vendors, et cetera. The people who spend time in other events, especially in industries that you're not in or with companies that are not yours are your vendors. These partners, they have deep insight into what's worked, what hasn't. Uh, they also have some pretty creative and clever ideas on how they might be willing to pay more money if you could deliver them more value. Bringing them into the mix as not just a funder, but a thought partner is, uh, you'll never regret it. I want to take a quick moment and thank the sponsor of this episode, Utopia Experience. When looking for an event and video production company, many businesses just want easy AV at an affordable price, and they overlook the most important part of producing an event and telling a story, building community. All event and video production companies have similar technology, but not all companies have the Utopia edge. You'll likely agree that attendee expectations are at an all-time high. In this experience economy, every form of communication and every interaction has to have a form of uniqueness and personalization. That's where Utopia comes in. The greatest value Utopia brings to clients is that they're fueled by curiosity, passion, and the desire to innovate. Most importantly, everything they do is aimed at scaling connection and uniting hearts at speed and scale. That means taking an otherwise transient and impermanent experience and making it transformational so it can live infinitely across time, transcending the four walls of your venue forever. Through unforgettable event experiences and thoughtful storytelling, Utopia Experience's mission is to help those that help the world. And you just mentioned something a moment ago, Matt. You talked about um, sponsorship and a unique way of, you know, I think this is something that we should unpack a little bit here. Um, 
one of the things we just recently did was we, 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 we said to an organization, hey, you want to build a more meaningful partnership with this particular sponsor of yours. What if you went to them and said, hey, Mrs. CEO of XYZ Company, we want to film a mini documentary on your life and your work. And this is for a nonprofit organization and on your life and on your philanthropic journey with us and how you're giving back and you're checking the social impact boxes and social change and um, really what, what it means you know, to, to, um, to, to us is that we want to highlight you. We want to highlight our partnership. So we filmed a, uh, a three-minute, three-and-a-half-minute documentary on this particular founder of this company, showed it at the event with 500 people in the room, and this particular sponsor stood up at the event and gave... Um, originally, they were committing a $10,000 gift. They, they offered $25,000 on the spot. Wow. And then the cool part is this, we're always thinking about, Matt, you talked about how can you take these things that um, happen at the event and make them live on afterwards? Now, what do you think that this sponsor, this founder of this company is going to do with that video asset? Oh my God, show it everywhere. Everywhere on their website. Hey, look at this social, you know, social change, uh, ticking all the, um, you know, the, the so, sort of the, the philanthropic boxes, social responsibility, sharing it with their community, their family, their friends, their neighbors. And if they're a successful individual, there's a high probability that they have successful people in their network that are going to see that video and then want to come to this event, right? Right. So for you, Matt, what's, what is the, the best way or one of the most unique ways that you've seen a company offer a sponsorship? Because ultimately our goal is to try and get the entire event covered or underwritten by a sponsor. Well, so I actually, we've, we've done a version of this. Uh, we had a small event geared towards lawyers at one point. And one of the things is that, that we realize that the, the sponsors are the ones who have their finger on the pulse of the industry, potentially way more than the people who are actively engaged in it, right? The, in this case, lawyers are so busy serving their clients and sadly keeping track of every six minutes of their day that they're not able to see the mega trends. And so what we did in that conference, and I think this, this, this works in multiple ways, is that instead of having spot, like we asked for sponsors, but the sponsors had to send a senior exec. And there was no booze, there was no tables, there was no swag. Each senior exec uh, got to participate in the entire event. They got to listen to their customers, they got to be engaged. We effectively turned the conference into a massive uh, focus group for them. But then we asked them, and this is my favorite part, is then each of the uh, sponsors got five minutes for a presentation in front of the room. But the way the presentation worked, and this works brilliantly with sponsors anyway, is they had five questions. And they knew the questions ahead of time. Uh, what are you seeing in the industry uh, that is exciting to you? Uh, are there people, are there, in this case, are there firms who are doing really cool things we should be paying attention to? Like some of those longitudinal things that someone in a given firm wouldn't be able to, wouldn't know. Uh, but then the fifth question is, is, is that how uh, do your products and services serve this audience, right? So they got the little bit of pitch. But what was amazing is that they became peers with everyone else. Right. And and they had some time, like one of them, uh, a friend of mine who was one who's got this amazing company in D.C. He's like, you know, I know I'm not supposed to pitch, but when it's happy hour, I've got a brand new beta version of our software that no one else has seen. Come hang out with me. Uh, and if you want access to it, I'll give it to you. Right. But don't you can't tell anybody like that kind of thing. So there's lots of, of, of value that if you trust your sponsors, especially when they bring the right people to not just be all salesy about it, uh, people can get a lot of value. Uh, the other thing that, that we did 
and this happened during the at the very beginning of the pandemic, we had seen a lot of uh, our friends in the sponsors who were vendors, business partners, sponsors, whatever they're called by different organizations who are getting absolutely zero value from virtual events. The virtual vendor halls early on were priced at the exact same price as what it was to be in person because they'd often had the check already. And what they ended up doing uh, is they would send people in there, they get zero leads. So we convened this thing called the Vendor Value Summit. Uh, if you go to perfectconference.com, it should still be there. There's a manifesto that we wrote based upon the insights we got from the day. And it was amazing the, the knowledge that they had that we were able to give back uh, to the industry in many ways. Uh, and a lot of it still applies, even though you have a significant number of people who uh, are now back to fully in-person. Uh, and what the vendors want is they want a chance to engage. They want to be seen as peers. Uh, and at the end of the day, they want data, right? And a data is not a badge swipe. Data is not an email list of everyone who's there. They want to know what people care about. And so now imagine this, and Joey and I talked about this. We're not going to get into all the details of, of the super secret project we, we think we might be cooking up. But imagine instead of one person speaking at the front of the room, you're building a way for hundreds of people to be having conversations about particular problems or challenges, right? Even if it's for just a two hour workshop in an entirely otherwise traditional event, you give a sponsor a chance to not only put their name on it, but to be present in those conversations, that's worth way more than a booth, uh, especially if they can deploy their entire development team or their entire sales team or their entire product roadmap. Give them also a chance to share their project roadmap in a way that they can get feedback from people who are their likely customers in the room. Then add to that, finding a way if you have these worksheets or these tools where people are having thousands of ideas, put a question or two on there that is relevant and suggested by the sponsor. It doesn't have to be, what would you want this sponsor to build for you? But they've got questions that they would love to have insight to. And now their sponsorship goes from a uh, you know, it, it might not have an extra comma in it, but it goes from four figures to five figures or five figures to six figures. Uh, because again, now they're viewed as peers, as thought leaders, uh, and you get to leverage the room, both for your benefit, for all, th for all three legs of the stool, for your benefit as a conference organizer or an organization, for the attendees benefit so they get to connect, but also now your sponsors get additional insight on how to serve your constituency better. So much insight here. So much insight. Just getting the getting the sponsors involved at that level is so meaningful, and it takes an otherwise transactional relationship into something that can be transformational and exponential. And God, the sponsors end up loving you, right? Like you talked a little while ago about how um, you know keynotes are going to leave your event and then head to another event the next day, and so your event becomes almost a transaction for them. And I think the right. same is true. For these massive, you know, blue chip companies, these Fortune 500,000 companies that are hit up all the time for sponsorships, you do something like what Matt just described. These sponsors are going to be hitting you up all the time and throw. I, I say this, but throwing money at you because you've provided them a value that they've never ever had at any other event in the past. We just had a conversation, Joey, uh, yesterday, yesterday afternoon. Longtime customer of ours uh, who's involved in a particular industry space. Uh, came to us and said, hey, does Philemon do focus groups? I'm like, I mean, not behind the glass, not behind the two-way mirror sort of focus groups, but you know, we can, we're really good at convening people to have them talk about stuff that's meaningful to everyone involved. 
And so where all of a sudden our space went to them is that like there's these two big industry conferences that for them capture both sides of their customer base. And so the model now instead is, I I think we're, I think they'll land on this is that they're going to do a VIP customer event uh, focused on uh, not delivering information, but on insight discovery, as I mentioned before, talking about the challenges they have. Certainly, they're going to get some insight in their own product roadmap, but they're going to make this something that uh, each of their customers gets to bring someone they they admire from a thought leadership, from a peer. So they're going to bring other customers into the mix that are our prospective customers. They're going to walk away with so much value from the insight, from the value of being the convener, but they're also going to be able to step aside and 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 because they're not trying to be a product focused event. Everyone who's there should be like, oh my goodness, I got to connect with people in a different way that I'm not going to get the rest of this conference. So even carving off and slicing that little bit is amazing. And now, and I think about this is going to be a very a fairly analog event. Uh, it'll lead into a dinner, right? So now the breaking of the bread continues and the conversations deepen. But now you start to think about uh, what technology could add to an event like that if deployed the right way. That it's not just recording to broadcast immediately. Uh, but to really to, to package those insights in a way that then becomes another evergreen deliverable that that conference or that vendor can use the rest of the year. So that they also then get it effectively amortize it over more than just that single, that single day's event. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Making the, making the content um, just have more meaning than, yeah. than a simple, uh, you know, what a lot of conference organizers do is they, they take the keynotes from the main stage and they put them online and make them gated. And hey, if you want access to this, you can log in and so on and so forth. But this is really using and leveraging the technology in the room um, to go further with it, to go further. Right. So let, let's, um, in wrapping up here, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned a moment ago, um, you know, what filament does. So, I mean, we've talked philosophically about a lot of different sort of approaches and methodologies around how we can make events more meaningful. Who is the perfect organization for you? And what are the services that Filament would provide for that organization? So, Joey, I have a, I have a completely different answer to this question than one you're, one you're expecting. Uh, we do meetings, right? And we sell meetings uh, because people don't believe that, we're, that we can deliver what happens in the room, right? We work across 30, 40 different industry sectors. We help nonprofits. We do uh, work with Fortune 100 companies and their C-suites. So, so we, we help smart people think together better. And so, so oftentimes what we're doing uh, is our customers come to us initially because they have a meeting, but they come back because they've got a problem to solve. So in those smaller meetings, especially here in our facility in St. Louis, a lot of our work is at 20 to 100 uh, meeting in person in our space. And it's nice. the nice thing about when you're here, we don't have to charge for anything extra. Like the sodas are free, grab a beer if you want at three o'clock. We don't want to be in the business like a hotel is of counting things, right? Because they've got separate business lines attached to each of those things. But what's happened is that because we get to be in rooms of smart people having discussing challenges, because we get to work across so many different industries relatively frequently, we get to try a lot of things. And so because so much of our stuff is built around breakouts and using these tools, they scale almost infinitely. So the things we learn even in small groups tend to apply to large groups. But the perfect customer for us is not a size of event. It's not an industry sector. Uh, It is uh, 
not even learning versus training versus facilitating, et cetera. It's, I want to talk with charismatic deviants. And it's one of my favorite terms. I, th that's our perfect customer. Someone who's willing to try something new, someone who's uh, tired of the status quo, someone who uh, has a little bit of political capital to spend, to, to be, who, who is reputationally has that, uh, you know, the reputation of their organization that, you know, they're the ones who are going to try something crazy. That's our perfect customer. And whether it is a thousand person conference, whether it is a 20 person executive team, uh, we're all in. Uh, because we can help. I think the other thing that's different about us, and th this is going to be, uh, <laughs> uh, this may cause some people to be scared out of their wits, but at filament meetings, especially the ones we facilitate in our own space, we ban PowerPoint. We want people to be doing things they need to be in person to do, of course, as we've said, and we have an artist who draws live. So like I'm looking at over across past the camera with a whiteboard filled with sketches. Uh, it's different, uh, but it also keeps people from reading their slides and, and we want them to be engaged with one another. And so I know that PowerPoint is a bogeyman for us. It's hard for people to imagine a conference, especially a thousand person conference one without people reading their slides at least a couple times. But I think that the charismatic deviants are the ones who are like, ah, maybe we'll try, we'll try a workshop without slides. We'll ban it for a track. We'll, because now that more than anything else helps you start think differently about the event. And I know Joey, you and I've talked about this is that the moment you're not worried about having to support the gigantic screen on the stage, making sure that you're flipping the button every time it's time for their slide. And instead starting to think about what your capabilities and technology capacity are to drive value after the meeting, everything shifts. Right now you're like, oh my goodness, look at all the stuff that's happening. Let's make sure we capture that, package it up in a way that has significant long lasting benefit and also makes everyone who didn't attend really pissed off they couldn't make it, right? That's what I want. And so that's what that's how we think about, think about that. I have uh, just some rapid fire questions for you and then we'll wrap it up. All right, I'll try and give you rapid fire answers. Favorite book, movie or podcast show? Besides this one, of course. Oh, this one uh, has to be at the top of your list. Oh, my goodness. Uh, favorite movies, Godfather, Godfather 2. My wife and I exchange them every Christmas. It's a weird tradition of us. Godfather 2 wins that for me. Uh, favorite book is Impossible. Uh, I read and I love so many. You know, I'm surrounded by business books even here at Filament. I will tell you one of the most uh, impactful books that most people who love business books would never read is a book called Making Comics. It literally is all about storytelling in, you know, how you use comics to tell stories as he's using comics to prove his point. Scott McCloud is the author of that. It's one of my favorite to recommend. Uh, the Artist's Way is another one uh, that lives out there as well. Uh, favorite podcast. My problem is I don't have a long enough commute. Uh, although I do really appreciate Two Bobs, which is David Baker and Blair Enns. Uh, some deep insight about agency stuff is probably where I get the most insight about my business, even though there aren't very many people in the country who do exactly what we do. Uh, I think those are my, those are my answers. What, uh, what matters most to you in life? Family's easy. So I, I take those off the board because I think that's true for so many of us. Uh, what matters most is, uh, and this sounds corny based upon what we've been talking about is that I want to fix meetings, right? Not just the kind of meetings we've been talking about, but meetings are where work happens. 
people spend a disproportionate amount of their time in bad meetings. And I think if I can make a dent in the world in some way, it's helping people meet together better, whether it's that five person status meeting they're doing. That's not an hour, it's a five hour meeting because everyone is an hour added together or it's building the tools we have or being able to deliver deep insights or have the smart people think together better and uh, walk out of the day being like, oh my goodness, this was amazing. That, that's what drives me. What's one thing you want to brag about right now without judgment? Uh, and this can be about yourself, uh, you know, personally, or maybe your professional accomplishment, uh, accomplishments. I, I, I wish it could be any sports team I follow, but I have particularly <laughs> bad taste in sports teams, especially my college Illini. Uh, something that I'm proud of to brag about, we built a thing here in, in uh, St. Louis called Thanksgiving, T-H-I-N-K-S giving. Uh, go to thanksgiving.org and check it out. First year we did it in the midst of COVID. Uh, the second year we did it uh, distributed. Last year we did it where everyone gathered here. And what Thanksgiving does is it pairs innovation and strategy professionals from big businesses with nonprofits for a day. Uh, we work with the nonprofits to build a challenge that can't be about money. You ask a nonprofit what they need, they always say more money. Uh, we take those challenges and we have the business partners come in and draft them, but they don't know the nonprofit it belongs to till after they're paired. Uh, we teach the business partners how to run a better innovation brainstorming day. And then they all gather in the same spot for an eight hour day, each partner trying to help their assigned nonprofit move the needle for the challenge they've identified. Here in Cortex, the district here in St. Louis, where we are, we had 550 people, 50 companies helping 50 nonprofits all in a single day. We expect that to grow, not just here in St. Louis, but we hope it grows elsewhere. That's the thing that I'm most proud of. Uh, it's this amazing energy uh, it checks all the boxes for us. And uh, I think it's going to make our city better. It's awesome. Yeah. And rightfully so. Definitely something to be proud of. I want to talk to you about that too and see how we can be involved. Awesome. Um, last but not least, how do people get in touch with you? You can find us at meetfilament.com. M-E-E-T. Filament as the thing in the light bulb. Uh, Thanksgiving is at thanksgiving.org. And uh, you can otherwise uh, find me on LinkedIn. Last name H-O-M-A-N-N. Would be happy to connect and uh, chat more. Thank you, Matt. Any last words of wisdom? Uh, you've used them all up. <laughs> all right, friends. There you have it. Matt, the founder of Filament, an organization committed to making smart people think better together through better meetings. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today on the Impact Roadmap podcast. And uh, thank you for making an impact on our community and the world. Thank you, Joey. Hey, if this episode was valuable to you, then uh, share it with someone that you love, someone that you know that could benefit from it. Also, be sure to subscribe. And depending on how you're listening, go ahead and leave a comment or review. This will help ensure that we are connecting with other nonprofit leaders so that we can get this critical information out to them. And if your company is in the early or even late stages of putting on an event, go to our website, utopiaexperience.com and click the Book Us tab and schedule a free discovery call to see if our services would be a right fit for your event. And even if they're not, that's okay. I promise you our expertise can steer you in the right direction so you'll get value either way. Thanks for listening to the Impact Roadmap and we'll see you next time.